I found an advertisement that said, Lost dog with three legs, blind in left eye, missing right ear, tail broken and recently injured, answers to the name Lucky. (laughs) What a misnamed pup. Well, Israel has been through some severe hardships, like a beat-up puppy needing the Lord to intervene and to heal. And the problem was, is that Israel brought it on herself. The nation effectively ran away from God and suffered the repercussions. What were they? Well, there were the Assyrians that conquered the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes. Then there was the Assyrian threat in the south as they surrounded Jerusalem with Shennacherib and his armies. We read about that. And then, ultimately, there was the 70-year captivity that began in 586 B.C. under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Back in chapter 64 of Isaiah, there was a prayer that began actually in 63 and in 64, and it was a prayer that was uttered by the prophet for deliverance. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, Isaiah prays. Rend the heavens and come down. It was a prayer for deliverance, for God to show himself strong on behalf of that nation. And in that chapter, in 64, Isaiah prays for the exiles who would be taken away into Babylon. And God answers, basically, by saying, when you return to me, I will return you to the land that I expelled you from. But you'll notice at the end of chapter 64, the prayer ends by asking, Will you hold your peace? Now God answers. And God says, No, I won't hold my peace. I will answer. And if you just skip ahead to verse 6 of chapter 65, where the Lord says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay even repay into their bosom. And so now we get the answer to the prayer in chapter 63 and 64 as God replies. Now, the reply that God gave isn't always the reply that we like. Uh, He says, I'm going to reply all right, and my reply will be in judgment on the nation, in seeking to bring that nation that has rebelled against me back to me. That was the purpose for the captivity. It was the reason for the judgment. God didn't want to string them out there, but through the hardship to return them to that relationship of intimacy, of being a light to the rest of the world. Now, the real glimmer of hope, and we get to it here as the book closes, the real glimmer is the far fulfillment of the coming kingdom age. When the Messiah reigns from Mount Zion, And Israel enters into its most glorious period, the period with its long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. The last two chapters give to us a blessing and a birth. Chapter 65 is the blessing of a new creation. Chapter 66 is the birth of a new nation as Israel is reborn, in a sense, a nation born in a day, it will say, in the kingdom age. 
This uh, last weekend, the reason I was absent last Sunday night is we were back in Albuquerque, uh, Raul Reese and I, and uh, there was a Somebody Loves You crusade. I dedicated uh, the church building, and we had a crusade Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, and the Lord was so faithful as 1,400 people made decisions to follow Jesus Christ in that town. So exciting. On Sunday morning... We had a great service in Albuquerque, and we dedicated uh, the new wing of the building that uh, we had been long waiting for to accommodate the needs of that growing congregation. And it's like, finally, it's come. After all of the inconvenience, after all of the dust blowing around the sanctuary, now it's done. And so we look forward to the time when it's done When Jesus comes again, when the millennial temple will be built in the kingdom age, when the nations will flow to Mount Zion, and then, ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is spoken about here. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day to, all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. God first announces that he has his arms stretched out to his own people. That offering of peace, the offering of fellowship, the offering of forgiveness, but his own people. The children of Israel, as described in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Isaiah, were rebellious. The ox, Isaiah said, the Lord said through him, knows his master's crib. The donkey knows who the boss is. But my people are rebellious, the Lord said. They don't know me. So here's God's offer to his own people. They don't want anything to do with him. They went astray and followed other gods. So what God announces is that he will stretch out his offer beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentiles, to people who had not previously called upon his name. In the New Testament, Jesus spoke of this. He announced it. He said, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring in. And... God used Paul the Apostle to do that. He was called the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he went out from Jerusalem throughout the known world at that time and spread the gospel. However, him going to the Gentiles didn't set that well with his Jewish brethren, both saved and unsaved. You remember the story when he was in the temple in Jerusalem and he was recounting his testimony there in Acts chapter 22. And he tells how God got a hold of him on the Damascus road. And he said, then the Lord said to me, I'm going to send you far from here unto the Gentiles. Now they were listening to him, the Bible says, up until he said that word. When he said Gentiles, that God is sending this ambassador, this rabbi to the Gentiles, they got all upset. They got so upset, they said, away with this fellow from off the earth. He's not fit to live. They were so hardened. Why? Because in Jewish thinking 2,000 years ago, 
Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. Can you believe that? That was a a statement, an axiom that they often spoke. They believed that ultimately all of the Gentiles would merely be slaves to the Jewish nation. They had no clue that God wanted to save the Gentiles. They even had a saying that is rendered, the best of the serpent's crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. They taught it was unlawful to even give aid to a Gentile woman who was giving birth to a child because you're helping bring another pagan into the world. So there was this distance between the Jews and the Gentiles. God is saying, I'm going to reach out to them. I've got a plan for them. And that's what the heart of the gospel is. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. The whole world is God's aim. He's not willing that any should perish. But even though his own disciples heard that, they weren't too quick to pick up on that or buy into it. Even Peter had trouble with it, you remember at first. When Peter was on the rooftop in Joppa, and he was hungry, and it was about 12 noon, and he fell into a trance, and he saw a vision from heaven of a sheep being let down from heaven with unkosher stuff on it, four-footed beasts, creeping things. And then God said, Peter, get up, slay, and eat. Peter, being the obedient servant that he was, said, No way, Lord! Not so. I've never had anything that's common or unclean. God said, what I've cleansed, don't you call unclean or common. God was opening a door to the Gentiles, but it was tough for the early church to buy into it. In fact, when Peter did go into the house of Cornelius, his Jewish brethren rebuked him, saying, you went into the house of an uncircumcised Gentile and you ate with him. Then there was a big blow up in Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem over the whole issue of who can be saved. Because some of them taught that you have to go through the line of Judaism in order to get into the kingdom of God. You have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. But God has a plan for them. Now, beginning in verse 3, God lists all of the provocations or a sampling of them, we might say, reasons for judgment. The reason God would judge the nation of Israel. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. This is the sin of idolatry. Who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels. So sad that Israel had degenerated to such a low state. Not only were they going through the rituals in the temple. One of their sins was necromancy. Sitting among the graves and consulting, supposedly, with the spirits of their departed loved ones. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Late night television. John Edwards. There was a gal, Madame Cleo. There have been a host of others. How you can contact your, your lost loved ones. Israel had degenerated to that place. Now, that's paganism. When I was in high school, I dabbled in the occult. 
Because I had a friend in high school who was into it. His name was Gino. And he would read people's fortunes and he would cast spells on people. And I thought the guy was a nut. But at the same time, there was an appeal to the spirit world. So while we were in Mexico, we decided let's pray to the spirits to find out who we used to be in a previous lifetime. Hey, we were in high school. We were experimenting with everything. And you know what? We got messages. They were anxious to communicate. In fact, they were more anxious to communicate than we were to receive. And I learned something. And I learned something that actually drew me to Christ. I learned there's power on the dark side. I learned that just as much as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, the devil hates you and has a miserable plan for your life and would love any way possible to get his talons into your existence. So as I dabbled into this, a thought dawned on me. I had been raised in the church. And here was the thought. If there's this much power on the wrong side, how much power must there be on the right side? And it was that thought that got me seeking the Lord, not religion, but a personal relationship with the Lord. Now, Israel left that and were dabbling in anything and everything to get some kind of a a word from the spirit world. Who say, verse 5, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Now that's a description of an arrogant form of self-righteousness, whereby this group of people would say, even to those who worship God correctly, I'm holier than you are. As they would dabble in all of these debased forms of pagan worship, I'm holier than you are. Self-righteousness has always been a problem with mankind. And, And here's the problem. We are, by nature, addicted to working for our own salvation. By the way, that's all self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness is rightly defined as being righteous by yourself. Your own good deeds, your own religion, your own works. And that was the problem, Paul said, of the Jews in his day. In Romans, Paul said, they being ignorant of the righteousness of God and going about to be established in their own righteousness have neglected the righteousness that comes from God. Now, every now and then, a person or a group or a system will come along and say, I've got to reach the supernatural. I realize that I'm confined in this box, this time and space continuum. I'm trapped in it. So I'm going to reach outside of my box into the supernatural. At the moment that mankind makes that reach, a new religion is born. Religion is man reaching up to God. It's not Christianity. Christianity is God reaching down to man, coming inside the box as flesh. God as a man dying for our sins to rescue us. And that's what God did. That was his plan all along. Behold, it is written before me, 
I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Now God explains to Israel why he has to judge them and that he's going to use the rod of Babylon as his instrument. But the good news is, in his mind, in his purview, not everyone will go into judgment. But that God will preserve a remnant, a small group out of the whole. And he's going to preserve them like a cluster of grapes would be kept from the wine press. And so in verse 7, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blaspheme me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and as one says, do not destroy, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake that I might not destroy them all. So it's a remnant, a portion, being saved from the judgment that is to come, being kept as a cluster of grapes because the wine is in it or the blessing is in it. In Revelation chapter 19, it's a picture of the future judgment. It's a picture of Jesus Christ coming at the end of the tribulation period. And as the chapter unfolds and we get that glimmer, that picture of Jesus, it is said he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And the picture is that of a of a, a threshing floor, or really a wine press as the grapes are, are crushed in the wine press. That's the picture of the final judgment. A lot of times we think that the term harvest has to do with evangelism, and sometimes it does. For instance, Jesus told the disciples, lift up your eyes and, and look, the fields are white for harvest, and pray that the Lord of the harvest send laborers out into the harvest. But more often than that, the term and the idea of the harvest in the scripture is that of a final judgment. Even John the Baptist spoke of God having the winnowing fork in his hand and he will thoroughly purge the threshing floor. And Jesus said that the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. But in the judgment, as in times past, In the future, God will preserve a remnant. In the tribulation period, that remnant of Jews will be 144,000. By the way, one of the, the stark characteristics of God and one of the reasons we hold so strongly to a pre-tribulation rapture is God knows how to make a difference when it comes to judgment. To preserve people out of it, keep them from it, while, like in the tribulation period, keep people through it. And that would be the 144,000, but not the church. They'll be kept from it. And the premise, Peter says, is that just as in times past, God did that in the flood. That's his character and nature. He will do it also in the future. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it. My servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks. And Sharon is a valley. It's a western valley off the coast. In in the western part of Israel, the Sharon Valley is beautifully decked with flowers and the kibbutzim, the growing of avocados and grapefruit. It's very lush even to this day. Western coastal valley. 
and the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Now, Achor is in the east near Jericho. Achor was that place you may remember in the book of Joshua when a guy by the name of Achan stole, took some of the loot once the children of Israel came into the land, crossed the Jordan, and uh, took the city of Jericho. And he took some of these dedicated or accursed things for himself. And God judged the entire nation for his sin. Well, the prophet Hosea made a prediction that the valley of Achor would one day become a door of hope. It's a beautiful picture of how God takes something from the past and restores in the future. And so, uh, all the way from the west to the east, it will be a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Now, just a, a word about these localities. A lot of times you'll have in the Bible local names given that represent the whole. Um, that's a literary device called a metonym. A part represents the whole. So when the Bible speaks of from Dan to Beersheba, that's from the north to the south. It's simply a, a device of saying the entire country. And that's the idea here, is he's saying all the way from the west to the east. In other words, those represent the entire nation that God promises to bring peace to and to bring peace to the flocks in the future. Now, the tribulation period, that, that period of judgment that is coming on the earth, Jesus said was the worst time ever. The world has never seen a time like the great tribulation that they're going to see. Now, that's a tough thought when you think of all of the world wars, all of the bloodbaths, all of the tragedies, all of the terrorism combined. The world has yet to see the worst time in the future. Now, that time is called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble. It will be a, a severe testing for the nation of Israel. And through it, God will preserve a remnant. Now, Paul was speaking about that in the book of Romans. He said, God has a plan for the nation of Israel. He's not done with it yet. Israel has a future. And in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul writes... And all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, when he says all of Israel, he doesn't mean every single Jew who has ever lived will be saved by virtue of the fact that they were Jewish. The idea all Israel will be saved is the 144,000 who will turn to Christ because of the two witnesses in the tribulation period. And there are 12,000 from each tribe. So you have this representative of the whole nation. Every single tribe, all of the tribes, all 12 will be saved, will be preserved. As God did it in the past, so God will do it in the future. And what I love, what I love is the principle this teaches us. God refuses to let the failures of the past mark your future and and keep away his blessing. God, if he's determined to bless, and he makes an everlasting covenant like he did with them, God's going to do it. 
You know, I read through the Old Testament and I read descriptions that God says of the children of Israel, like they're stiff-necked, they're stubborn. And there's so many of these hardened descriptions, and yet there's this promise that God is going to bless. In verse 9, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Jacob an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. You see, God's callings are irreversible. The callings of God are without repentance. And so God will preserve, seal, the Bible says, 144,000. That is, in sealing them, protecting them through the tribulation period, though they will be hassled, though they will be persecuted. Then, Jesus Christ will come and reign from Mount Zion. In the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth, then in the eternal state, in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be a new Jerusalem, and the gates of the city will be named after the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the foundations of those gates. So even though Israel failed and sinned in the past, God promises a restoration for this remnant that signifies all of Israel in the future. And that's the reason, by the way, that we strongly support Israel. We don't strongly support every political move that they make or every stand on every issue that they make. What we support is God's covenant with that people. God made a covenant. And he says, uh, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Hey, I want to be blessed. I don't want to be cursed. God says, whoever touches Israel touches the apple of my eye. Have you ever gotten a piece of dust in your eye caught and it it, it bothers you? You want to get it out at all costs? And so we bless Israel because we love Israel's Messiah. We love Israel's God and we seek to win them like we would win anyone else. There's a little saying that says, how odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jew, but hate the Jewish God. And so God made a covenant with the people and we support the people because of the Jewish God. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad It's a a deity, a Canaanite deity. Gad means troop. It was one of the tribes, you remember. But this is different. And who furnish a drink offering for many. That's another deity. Now, the word many means number. And notice a play on words here. In verse 12, Therefore I will number you for the sword. I'm going to take your whole troop and number all of you for the sword. And you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, 
But you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. Hey, you know what? I'd rather have God as my friend and the whole world as my enemy than the world as my friend and God as my enemy. When God says he's against you, can't take that lightly. He loved his people. He had a plan for his people, but God is just. Thus God must judge. He did and he will. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Now you notice that little phrase in that verse, the God of truth. Literally, it's the God of the Amen. In Hebrew, Amen, which means of a truth. And so he is the God of the Amen or the God of truth. In other words, God is going to honor his promises. God will honor his promises to the nation of Israel. God will honor all of his promises to you and to me. If God made a promise to you, don't just underline it. Live by it. Underline it. Go ahead. Memorize it. Great. But live by it. Say, that's for me, Lord. Time magazine a few years ago put out an article about the promises of the Bible. It seems that there was a guy from Canada named Everett Storms who read through the Bible 26 times looking for promises. On his 27th time, he started writing down all of the promises God made to man. Now, he counted on this 27th time, took him a year and a half to log them all. He counted 7,487 promises that God made to us. Boy, that's enough to keep you going, isn't it? That's enough to last you for a lifetime. He's the God of the amen, the God of truth. He'll honor his word, honor his promises. The Bible says in Hebrews, it's impossible for God to lie. And Paul wrote to Titus and he said, God who cannot lie. Take him at his word. He's going to keep it. Now... God saves the best for last. We get, beginning in verse 17, blessings of the kingdom age, that thousand-year millennial reign, on into the new heaven and the new earth. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. In Revelation chapter 20, there is a time that is given to this kingdom age Explicitly told by John, a thousand years. We believe it's literal. We look forward to a time when God will fulfill all of the promises he made to Israel. And there will be on this earth a kingdom age. Jesus, the Messiah, will reign from Jerusalem. The law will go forth from Mount Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now you should know that not everybody agrees with that position. There are other positions, for instance, uh, some hold the amillennial view. The amillennial view states that, well, you can't take it literally, you have to take it figuratively. 
That is, it's not a thousand years literally. It's not uh, a seven-year tribulation literally. It's not that all of the promises God made to Israel will ever be fulfilled literally because, after all, they say in this position, Israel has forsaken all of these promises by its disobedience. Thus, the church now is the recipient of all of Israel's blessings that God promised in the Old Testament. They will tell you that the kingdom age is not a literal thousand years to come. Listen carefully. They will say the kingdom age is now. You're in it. It's the church age. Now, I got to tell you something. If this is the kingdom age, I'm really, really disappointed. (laughs) It's not what I've expected by reading the Bible. And if this is the kingdom age, I'm very confused because it would seem that why would God uh, use the entire book of Revelation to tell us what's not going to actually happen? You see, if a thousand doesn't mean a thousand, if 144,000 really doesn't mean 144,000, etc., etc., then it's anybody's guess what it does mean. And you're in a worse position if it's figurative, because now you're left up to the arbitrary decision of what it does mean. Well, 144,000 doesn't mean 144,000. Okay, then you tell me what it does mean. Well, a thousand years doesn't mean... Okay, then what does it mean? Now, there's another position, and that's the post-millennial position, which basically says it's a, a... that Christians will bring in the kingdom by spreading the gospel. It's resurfaced in in dominion theology or kingdom now theology. That is, we, by our involvement and by our spreading of good deeds, good works, and messianic values, are going to take over the world and present that to Christ. Uh, Several years ago, when Pat Robertson ran for president of the United States, he even said, if I'm elected, that will be the first step in presenting the kingdom to Christ. And the whole idea is this dominion takeover theology. Now, I subscribe that the only way to look at prophecy is literally. There's going to be a literal rapture of the church, a literal tribulation on the earth, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ from the earth. And why? Because it makes best sense that way. It's the most natural reading of the Bible. Also, it makes sense chronologically. The tribulation begins in Revelation chapter 6. It ends in chapter 19. And you can read it just uh, plainly and simply, straightforward. Also, the early church fathers, including Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, taught that the thousand years was literally a thousand years. So we have good precedence for it. I love what Vance Havner said. He said, it's always easier to understand what the Bible actually says than to understand what somebody thinks it meant to say. Ever have people say, well, I know the Bible says that, but really what it means is, I think God's very capable to tell us exactly what he meant, and he has. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. 
nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. In the kingdom age, there's going to be health and longevity. Now, they tell us that we're aging as a culture. We're getting healthier and healthier. There's more centenarians, 100-year-olds now than ever before. (laughs) You ain't seen nothing yet. The kingdom age will be an interesting time of, of health and longevity. And because of that, an incredible reproduction and population explosion, I believe, on planet Earth. Just think, no need for a longevity magazine, no need for special creams or facelifts or all of the big bucks that people spend on surgery, just, you know, this beautiful health, no need for convalescent homes, that longevity living in that peaceful environment with the Lord. I saw a, uh, a special on television uh, some time ago. It was called Eternal Life. And it was how people deal with the concept of death, uh, from facelifts to creams to cryonics, having their bodies or brains frozen until we can come up with a cure to diseases. And they interviewed three people, no joke, who stood there, looked at the camera, and said, we don't believe we're ever going to die. We believe we are now immortal. And uh, bold-faced, they said that. As I heard him say that, I thought to myself, I want to see another interview in 25 years. I want to see what they look like. I want to see how they feel at that time. Hey, why waste your time? Look what's going to come. It's going to come. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. There'll be blessing and prosperity. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Permanence, stability, reward. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. Don't have to worry about those kids. For they shall be descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. Such an intimate relationship that God anticipates the needs and is there to care and nurture his people. The wolf... And the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Finally, there will come a day when there will be world peace. All of that instinct, that carnivorous, destructive instinct that so many animals have in the animal kingdom. That law of survival, the law of the jungle, will be changed to the law of the kingdom. The Gallup organization said the most commonly asked question that people have today, in fact, they said, if people could ask God one question, they were asked, what would it be? 
When will there finally be world peace? When is it going to come? God promises it. It was even announced when Jesus was born. Peace on earth. And yet after 2,000 years, we don't see it. Of course, we know that he was speaking about that inner peace, but eventually there will be literal world peace. Back in chapter 2 of Isaiah, you remember that glorious prediction. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn to make war any more. That motto is printed today above the United Nations building as you enter it. It's what they've hoped for. It's what they've tried, they say, to achieve. But up to this point, unsuccessfully. Here we read of its fulfillment. Basically, it will be a restored earth to nearly its original glory. The animal kingdom tame. And, uh, you know, uh, I was in Kenya a few years ago, and we were driving this car out in this uh, field, and we saw a lion. And I had my camera, and I said, oh, great, because she looks so docile, just laying down there with her cubs. So I started rolling down the window to take a picture, and the guy says, Skip, don't you touch that window lever. Because these lions have been known to reach in and grab people. Just be content to keep a distance. Use the telephoto lens. That's as close as you want to get. Because to get close to a lion today, you need a cage or a window or a zoo. But imagine an entire reconstruction in the nature and the character of these carnivorous beasts. Now in chapter 6, we go from the blessing of the new creation to the birth of a nation. And uh, Isaiah is going to begin his final summary, basically, where God is saying, I know that there is a temple. And I know that in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a rebuilt temple. But what I really desire is to dwell within people. I'm not into the temple structure. It's what it means. It's what it points to. And so in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? Now that's a verse that Stephen quoted in the book of Acts as he gave his defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He indicted them basically for making the temple much more than it really was by limiting God to the temple. The temple was glorious. It was incredible. Even Solomon's, but even much more Herod's temple because he enlarged it to a 135-acre complex. But in the Midrash, the Jewish commentaries, there's a saying in one section that says the center of the earth is the nation of Israel, the center of Israel is Jerusalem, and the center of Jerusalem is the temple. Even to this day, the Jews call the Temple Mount by a three-word term, Har Habayit, Mountain of the House, because that to them is the house of God, the house of the Lord. And even the disciples... When they were leaving the temple compound one day, they said to Jesus, basically, look, look at at the buildings, look at the massive stones that are here. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another. They will all be thrown down. 
Solomon took seven and a half years to build the temple of God. And then one day he dedicated it. And I love what he said. He had the perspective that here is a building, a very ornate and expensive building. But in his prayer, with his hands raised toward heaven, Solomon said to God, heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you, much less this house which I have built. In actuality, I'm looking at the temple of God. You're it. God dwells in people. You and I, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's where God is pleased to dwell in the vibrant hearts of his redeemed. If you ever go to Israel, some of the tour guides are going to uh, tell you one of their famous jokes over there. They'll say, as you go to the Western Wall and people are praying, they'll say, um, hey, here's the place to pray. God will hear people anywhere in the world, but here in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount, it's a local call. They're sort of proud of that fact, that this is the place where God decided to establish his name. Hey, you know what? It's a local call anywhere. If you know the son, that's the route to the father. If you know his son, he is pleased to hear your prayer anywhere. I was, uh, I was uh, in Israel for the first time um, back in the 70s, and I remember going to the Garden of Gethsemane. I was waiting for a special feeling. I traveled all that way to work on a kibbutz for a special feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I sat there, Bible open, eyes closed. You say, why'd you have your Bible open and your eyes closed? I don't know. Just I, I, I thought it was a spiritual thing to do. But I was there, and I said, okay, Lord, lay it on me. And I waited, and nothing happened. That special feeling didn't happen. Now, other people have been there and they said, oh, that it was incredible. It was overwhelming. And that's great. It didn't happen to me. But when I got back and I sat in my little cockroach ridden apartment in Santa Ana, one evening I opened my Bible and I experienced a closeness with the Lord as he spoke to me through his word. That was powerful. It was so incredible. That feeling that I tried to work up in the Garden of Gethsemane, I could have had for free just by staying home. And Well, in verse 2, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. And who trembles at my word. In thinking of the temple, the ornateness of it, the gold, the silver, the cedar wood imported from Lebanon, and all that went into it. God says, look, I made all these things. I made the trees. I made the gold that you mined out. I made all the stones that you put into place. Solomon's temple was only 2,700 square feet. That is the temple proper. To reproduce it today, they say, would cost $11 million. Now, you do the math. That's about $4,000 a square foot. That's high real estate. What God is saying is, look, I don't need these things. I made these things. Heaven is my dwelling place. Earth is my footstool. It's what the temple is meant to point to that is important, and that's what some of them at that time had forgotten. All was meant to point to God. Now, there is a value in a 
a temple, a building, a structure. In Psalm 73, Asaph discovered the secret. He was going through some severe trials. He was looking around his world and he noticed that it would seem that ungodly people prospered and godly people were being hassled, persecuted, and didn't have quite the amenities that the unbelieving people had around him. And this bothered him. In fact, he said, I was undone. I almost lost it. Until I went into the sanctuary and I understood their end. As I was in that place of worship, as my thoughts were elevated, and I thought not just of the temporary, but of the permanent, of the eternal, my perspective changed in that place of worship. I considered the end of the unbeliever and the end of the believer, and I walked out unburdened. So when we gather in a place of worship, in a building, if I am reminded of God's transcendence, And my dependence, the building has served its purpose. It's to point us to God. Now, we should move on. There will be a millennial temple, and we'll get to it in the book of Ezekiel. Several chapters, chapters 40 through 48, will detail the millennial temple and the sacrifices that will occur during that time. But what I love in verse 2 is God says, Uh, The one that he will look upon is one who is a poor and contrite spirit, one who trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. You remember those two on the road to Emmaus? And Jesus came alongside and spoke to them the word, and then they discovered it was Jesus. And afterwards they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way? And he opened to us the scriptures. Do you know... Then in the book of Psalms, it says God magnifies his word above his name. God isn't interested in outward religious observances, but a relationship based upon those who love and reverence his word. One of the things I am so grateful for in being a part of Calvary Chapel is the legacy that has been passed down to love the word, study the word, apply the word, learn the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. God says, I look upon those who tremble at my word. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, he who offers a grain offering as he offers swine's blood, he who burns incense, as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. What's God speaking of? It would seem that some of the Jews were offering these Animal sacrifices in the same nonchalant way as pagans would offer their sacrifices. Part of pagan sacrifice was human sacrifice. That's the allusion to it in this verse. They, They were going through the motions just like pagans would go through the motions. That's the idea. Now, do you realize that God never separates worship from the worshiper. 
God just doesn't look at the worship as much as the heart of the worshiper. When Cain and Abel brought their sacrifice to the Lord, and the Bible tells us that Cain brought the fruit of the ground, Abel brought the firstlings of his flock, God had respect to one but not the other. And Cain complained that God didn't receive his offering. And why not? Because the Lord said, If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, uh, Cain, if you live right, I'll accept you. You're bringing your sacrifice. You're bringing your own works before me. I'm looking at your heart. Not the outward thing that you bring to me. What's in the heart? Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, and said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who caused delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Israel would deliver a male child before her time of pain, her labor. I believe this refers to two things. It refers the male child to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That birth occurred 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. But there's coming a time, the time of Jacob's trouble, that is described like birth pains of a woman, the tribulation period. Through that period, a very painful experience for the nation of Israel. But at the end, Jesus will come back. There will be like a rebirth as they go into the kingdom age with their Messiah, ruling and reigning from Mount Zion with 144,000. Now, political Israel was born in one day on May 14th of 1948 by a UN resolution. But the kingdom age, I think, is being referred to here, or at least both of them, one and then foreshadowing the other, that rebirth of the nation entering the kingdom age after the second coming. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all of you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. Jerusalem is compared to a nursing mother. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides, you shall be carried And be dandled on her knees. Again, in Isaiah chapter 2, it is predicted that all of the nations, all of the Gentile nations will flow into Jerusalem, into Zion, bringing its wealth. 
supporting its endeavors in the kingdom age. There will be abundant peace. As it's described here, peace like a river. Some of you remember that old song, I've got peace like a river, joy like a fountain, etc. comes from this verse. Now in Canaan, there were few rivers. There was the Jordan River and there were tributaries thereof. But really, the nation depended on rain from heaven to fill the rivers, especially the dry rivers, the wadis, at two times during the year, the early and the latter rain, the yore and the malkosh, the early and the latter rain, where those dry wadis would fill up and it would nurse and nourish the inhabitants of the land with all their flocks. So simply, it's a picture of prosperity, a picture of care, abundance, and rest. Jesus spoke of living water in John chapter 7. Whoever believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He spoke of that relationship with him and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. As one, verse 13, his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord will be many. Now, when Jesus comes back, there will be a great slaying in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. Then the world will experience a thousand years of peace on earth, the millennial kingdom. However... Though Satan had been bound, will have been bound by that time during that thousand years, at the end he will be loosed once again and deceive nations and a great rebellion will unfold. And then at the end of that period will be another judgment. In Revelation chapter 20 we read, When the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released from prison And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It speaks of the slain of the Lord being many. There is a practice, it used to be very popular some years ago, and in some circles it still is, known as being slain in the spirit. The idea is that you are in a a time, a place, a relationship, an experience with God that so overwhelms you that you lose all control and you fall over, you pass out. I do believe that we can have a reaction to the Holy Spirit's interaction and that there can be this overwhelming experience. However, 
It is our reaction to that. It's not God bowling you over. The blessing isn't having you pass out. There's no scriptural uh, basis for that. Now, when you try to arrive at a scriptural basis and you ask some of these folks, why do you practice this? They're hard-pressed to point to any solid scriptural foundations. Sometimes they'll point to the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, I'm the one. They all fell backwards. Well, they were pagan Romans. That's not an experience to be duplicated by New Testament Christians. They fell back in fear. It wasn't like, oh, what a blessing. We. <laughs> Some point to Ananias and Sapphira. Hey, they were slain by the Lord. And they didn't get up again. And that's the idea here. The slain of the Lord will be many. Others will point to Saul of Tarsus when he fell off onto the ground on the Damascus road. But once again, at that point, he was an unbeliever. And God used it to get his attention. Now granted, John in Revelation 1, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1, had an experience with God where they fell to their face in worship. But it doesn't seem to be a recurrent practice taught or encouraged for the New Testament. And I have nothing against being overwhelmed by God. What I have a problem with is trying to manufacture it as sort of an assembly line blessing. Come up and we'll hit your forehead and you'll receive your blessing. Not a blessing. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh. Notice the recurrent phrase over and over again. We've read that. And the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and all tongues, and they will come and see my glory. Now the book closes with messengers going throughout the earth, announcing what God has done for Israel. I will set a sign among them. And those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish, that's the ancient name of Spain, to Pol and Lud, that's the areas of northern Africa, who draw the bow, and to Tubal, that's the northeastern part of Asia Minor, and Javan, that's Greece, to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame or seen my glory, they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles." So these are representative Gentile areas. The world will hear of the fame of the Messiah, the glory of God in Israel. They shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses, in chariots, and in litters, on mules, on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. There will be sacrifices, as we already mentioned. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I made shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, 
and their fire is not quenched, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What a way to end a book. It ends with the worshipers in Jerusalem seemingly going out to the valleys around it, especially the valley of Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, the ancient garbage dump, and seeing the decayed corpses of those who rebelled and rejected the Lord. Now, here is a phrase that Jesus quotes in Mark chapter 9 when he speaks of hell. The fire is not quenched. The worm does not die. Throughout the book of Isaiah, in fact, throughout the whole Bible, there is this oft-made comparison between the righteous, the unrighteous, um, those who follow God's way, those who rebel, those who rely upon him, those who run from him. And so often the Bible does us the favor by taking all of the options that mankind has and takes it to the irreducible minimum of two choices. Children of Israel were in the wilderness. God said, see, I have set before you this day a blessing and a curse, life and death. Therefore, choose life. Jesus said, enter into the narrow gate for wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many enter therein. But narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. And few find it. Elijah did the same thing. If Baal is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, worship and follow him. Two choices. So of all of the options, Isaiah brings it back to here's the righteous, here's the unrighteous. Follow God's way, trust him implicitly. And here's the result of those who do not. There was a legend of a man who was walking down a path and he got lost and he fell into some quicksand. He was crying out for help and Confucius walked by. And Confucius saw him drowning in the quicksand and he said, it's obvious that men should stay out of such places. Very wise. Uh, Then Buddha came by. And he saw him and he said, let this man's plight be a lesson to the rest of the world. And Muhammad walked by. And he said, alas, it is the will of God. And then Jesus stopped by and he said, give me your hand and I'll save you. That's the great prediction of Messiah. The Savior is coming. The servant of the Lord That's God's plan, to save people out of the pit of their despair. It's the gospel that's predicted throughout the whole scripture and unfolded in the new. Let's pray together. Lord, what a glorious time we've had in this book, uncovering your plan for the nation of Israel and your plan for the world. And Father, we are so grateful to be included in your plan. We think of you choosing us and we're humbled. And the best is yet to come. Lord, I pray that whatever situation your people find themselves in tonight, that they would be lifted in spirit their eyes looking heavenward, anticipating your return. 
living in the light of your soon return. We believe, Jesus, you're coming soon. Then, Father, we pray for those who are in the throes of a decision. Maybe coming to the church, coming to the temple over and over again, but not entering into a personal relationship as yet. May they take your loving hand and be rescued from the quicksand. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Shall we stand? Now that we have the book of Isaiah under our belts, we move on to Jeremiah. And you'll find it a very fascinating book. Jeremiah was probably called to one of the most difficult ministries any man could ever be called. He was called by God to oversee the death of a nation. And as we read Jeremiah's prophecies, and as we read his sermons to the nation of Israel, as he describes the conditions that were going to bring the death of the nation, Tragically, we will see many parallels to our nation today. So it becomes a very current and a modern book because I believe that we are seeing the death of our nation morally, spiritually. And I do believe that, as Skip said, the Lord is coming very soon for his church. And the world will then have the opportunity to experience what they desire. Unbridled sin. No one to condemn. And the world will plunge into the darkest period of the world's history, which will provoke the judgment of God. So we've got some great and fascinating studies through Jeremiah. Look forward to the next book that we will encounter in our journey through the Bible. The pastors are down here at the front, and they're here to minister to you tonight. If you have any kind of a need, spiritual, financial, physical, God wants to bless you. Notice how the Lord said, My servants shall eat. My servants shall drink. My servants shall rejoice. God wants to bless you tonight. You're the only one that can withhold those blessings by not receiving. But the door is open for you to come and to receive the work of God's Spirit in your life this evening. They're here to minister to you and to pray for you I would encourage you to take advantage. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river in my soul. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace. Like a river in my soul 
I've got joy like a fountain, I've got joy like a fountain, I've got joy like a fountain in my soul. I've got joy like a fountain, I've got joy like a fountain, I've got joy like a fountain in my soul. I've got love like an ocean, I've got love like an ocean, I've got love like an ocean in my soul. I've got love like an ocean, I've got love like an ocean, I've got love like an ocean in my soul. God bless you. This is the end of this message. If you would like further information on any of our products or to receive our free catalog, contact The Word for Today. The address is P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. Or you may reach us by our toll-free number, 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-WORD.